we're going to come around to God's Word now. So if you've got a Bible with you, if you want to turn with me to the book of John, we're going to be in John chapter 11 together this morning. This is what it says. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary was the bro- brother Lazarus, now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one that you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews there tried to stone you. And yet, you're going back? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by the world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. And when he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going to go and wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us go also, that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in their loss of their brother. When Mary heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she said. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews, who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly She got up and went out. They followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? 
Christ. Come and see, Lord, they replied, Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he have opened the eyes of the blind man, kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more, moved, moved deeply, came to the tomb. It was a cave where the stone was laid across the entrance. Take the stone away, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's going to be a bad odour, for he has been there for four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took the stone away. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but for this. But I said this for the sake of those standing here, that they may believe that you have sent me. When he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth off his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you this morning for your words. We thank you for the way that it speaks to us and it encourages us. And I pray, Father God, that as we open up this passage together this morning, that faith will rise in our hearts for what you have to say to us individually and collectively as a church. Have your way this morning, King Jesus. In your holy name. Amen. So as we begin to draw our latest sermon series to a close, this sermon series which we've entitled the journey, looking at some significant journeys throughout Scripture and how God moved in them and what God said in them and how it affects us and what it means for our own journey. Today we look at perhaps what I think is one of the most troubling journeys of Jesus in the entire Bible. It's troubling because in a sense we expect Jesus to do a certain thing and to move in a certain way. And yet it seems very obvious to us does the total opposite of what we expect. You see, what we see in John chapter 11, right at the start of this particular passage, is that there is a man who is sick. And when we're talking about a sick man here, we're not talking about a man who's in bed with man flu. This sickness is going to be something which eventually leads to death. There is an imminent threat to the man's life. John chapter 11 also teaches us that Jesus had a relationship with this sick man. In fact, to me, it suggests that Jesus and this sick man were pretty close. You see, a message was sent to Jesus, and the message was, the one that you love is sick. Now, I don't know about you, but if there's someone in my life that I love, and they've got a problem, or something which is troubling them, or a situation that I might be able to help with, my instant response is I want to do everything I can in my power to do something about their situation and to ease what they are going through. So it's reasonable for us to look at this particular passage this morning and expect Jesus to get this message that one of his friends is sick, the one that he loves is sick, and then Jesus to leave immediately and do something about the situation once and for all. I mean, Jesus didn't even have to do that, did he? Jesus has form in other Gospels where someone comes to Jesus and they say, go home and the thing that you're praying about will be sorted out. 
So it's reasonable for us to think and consider that Jesus is going to move when he hears this message about his friend Lazarus being sick. But let's give him the benefit of the doubt. He's a couple of days away, a couple of days travel away, so he could have just done it the other way, couldn't he? And just said, go on your way to the servant, and when you get home, Lazarus will be well. That's what makes sense to me in this particular story, in this particular circumstance, in this particular situation anyway. I wonder if you've ever been in that place, in a place where you have found yourself in a situation or a circumstance and you've thought to yourself, do you know what, I can see the route out of this. I know how this is going to go. If God moves in this way and does this, this, this and this, everything is going to be all right. But for some reason, God doesn't move in the way that you thought he should or the way that you hoped because that's exactly the situation that we see unfolding before our very eyes here in the passage today. Lazarus, a friend of Jesus, was sick. Jesus had the ability to save him. He had the ability to save him and not even move. And yet, when Jesus hears about his friend Lazarus being sick, he waits for two whole days and does absolutely why? Well, the long and the short of the story is that eventually Jesus does move and he goes and he heals Lazarus. And what happens is it kickstarts a whole chain of events which eventually leads Jesus to the cross. That's the big picture of John chapter 11. Jesus could have healed Lazarus there and then. As he'd done so, what would have happened is Lazarus would have got better and he would have lived on for a while and then he would have died again. But the big picture of the story is that Jesus done something which ultimately led him to the cross and meant Lazarus could have eternal life when he died. The truth is, we may not always see what God is doing. We may not always perceive what God is doing. We may not understand where God is in our situation or our circumstance. But just because we don't see it doesn't mean that God is not in it. Right there is a sermon in itself. And we could spend all morning simply focusing on that point alone together, but that's not really where I want us to land this morning. You see, what we see on this encounter on the journey that Jesus takes here is a number of different responses along the way, which in many respects, I believe, speak into our lives individually and probably our life as a church at the moment and where we find ourselves. And I believe that as we continue to walk this journey as a church together, God is calling us to once again begin to catch a glimpse of some of these things that we might then use to live in. The first response that I want us to focus on this morning from this particular passage is the response of the disciples. You see, they don't fully understand or they don't fully grasp what is going on. They hear that Lazarus is sick. And they wait with Jesus for two more days. And then Jesus says to his disciples, let's go. And at this point, the disciples are thinking to themselves, is this really the best solution right now? If we go with you now, Jesus, there is a chance we are going to find ourselves getting hurt. And Jesus turns around to his disciples and he says to them, Lazarus has fallen asleep. So at this point, they're like, great. That's perfect. If Lazarus is sick, the very best thing that he can do is to fall asleep. Because ultimately, when someone is ill, 
sleep and rest is the best thing for them. So then Jesus opens it up a bit more. And he says something which really blows my mind, to be honest. Verse 14 and 15 says this. He told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there. So that you may believe. But let us go back to him. Lazarus was sick. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there. Jesus, you shouldn't be saying things like that. After all, you've told us before that you came to heal the sick. Why on earth would you say that you're glad you were not there when your friend, the one you loved, was sick? Remember that we're talking about this in the context of a bigger picture. We, sitting here today, know the end of the story. We know that Jesus eventually does go to Lazarus and does heal Lazarus, which sets that plan into motion for the whole of humanity. But before that, there is a realization that the disciples are still walking in fear. And they don't fully understand or grasp the one that they are walking with. Miracles weren't a new thing for the disciples. They would have grown accustomed to seeing Jesus perform miracles probably on a daily basis. In fact, resurrections weren't even a new thing for the disciples. There are two accounts of resurrections in the Bible before we even get to the story of Lazarus. But this one is different. You see, by going to Lazarus, at this point, with everything going on, they were walking into the unknown. This was dangerous for the disciples. That's why Thomas later on says, let us go with Jesus that we might also die. And not only that, the previous resurrections that Jesus had performed were slightly different to this one. You see, the previous resurrections were very much instantaneous. Someone dies, Jesus shows up, and he sorts it out and raises them to life. Lazarus, though, had been in the tomb for four whole days. And in the temperature of the Middle East, his body would have begun to decompose very, very rapidly. There couldn't be a comeback in this situation, could there? And what this shows us is that the disciples, even though they've been walking with Jesus for quite a considerable time at this point, still didn't really understand who he was or who they were walking with. They still hadn't fully grasped that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one that with a word brought everything into being. They still didn't fully understand that this Jesus is the great I am, the one for whom nothing is impossible. So even though they walked with him, they still walked in fear. I wonder how many of us, our own walks with Jesus, looks a little bit like that. Maybe you have been a Christian for many, many years. Maybe you have walked with Jesus for a long time. But you have never really seen the power of God move in your life. What it appears that Jesus is doing here with his disciples is putting them in a situation where they needed to learn to rely totally and utterly upon him. You know, sometimes God does that with us as well. He'll place us in a situation or a circumstance which is slightly uncomfortable in a place where we need to learn to rely totally and utterly on him because if we don't, everything else falls flat. For me, the picture that conjures up in my mind is the picture of an ice skater. 
you may or may not believe it, looking at the way I'm built and my frame, but actually, I am a pretty good ice skater. When I was younger, the way that I would get around Portsmouth, because Portsmouth is incredibly flat, was on a pair of rollerblades. I would rollerblade absolutely everywhere. At any time, that's how you would see me, on a pair of rollerblades. And that skill translated to an ice rink. But I remember the first few times that I ever went ice skating. And like anyone, when you first go ice skating, you kind of do this weird walk, don't you, around the side, where you're kind of holding on to the edge, trying to keep your balance, and going around the outskirts of an ice rink. But sooner or later, what you realize is that even though to some degree that feels quite safe, it's absolutely rubbish. Because it's boring. And you just end up walking around the outskirts of the ice rink. And sooner or later, you might get a little bit braver and start to skate a little bit away from the edge until you finally plucked up the courage to find yourself in the middle of the rink. And at first, it feels fine. You're in the middle of the rink, and actually, it all feels okay. But then it suddenly dawns on you just how far you are away from the side of that ice rink. And the fear begins to kick in as a result of that. So you pretty quickly make your way back to the side and start that weird walk with everyone else around the rink. But after a while, a greater realization begins to dawn. You see, the center of the ice rink is actually the safest place because hardly anyone goes there. Everyone's too concerned about doing the weird walk around the side. Even though it feels like you're out of your comfort zone, even though it feels a little bit daunting to be away from the edge, what you realize is it's the best place to be. And when it comes to God, sometimes he will take us away from the edge, from the seeming safety of holding on to what we hold on to, to a place where we have to fully rely upon him. It feels scary, but let me tell you, it's the safest place to be, being in the center of his And that's what's going on for the disciples here. They knew that going back meant possible death. They knew that going back meant there was nothing they could do about their own personal situation and walk. But by trusting in Jesus, they've begun to see who he truly is. Where is God calling you to trust right now? That you might see a mighty move of God in your life. Jesus, who initially seems inactive, does move. And he does go back. And when he goes back, he is greeted by one of the sisters of Lazarus, a lady called Martha. Martha, naturally, is distraught by what has happened to her brother. And what she says to Jesus in verse 21 is this. Lord, if you had only been here, my brother wouldn't have died. The fact of the matter is, Martha looked at Jesus and she knew that Jesus was the one who could make the difference. And in verse 22, she recognized that even now, even in this hopeless situation, in this hopeless circumstance, Jesus could still make a difference. She says this to Jesus in verse 22, but I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. In other words, Jesus, my brother, is dead, but you can still do something about this situation. But what I find remarkable about this passage is that a little later on, she appears to contradict this statement of faith that she makes. You see, Jesus eventually says, okay, let's do something about this situation. Move the stone from the tomb. And Martha says in verse 39, but Lord, by this time there'll be a bad odor because he's been in the tomb for four days. On the one hand, she's confessed that everything is possible with God. 
But then she seems to go on to question the validity of that statement by effectively saying, Jesus, there's nothing really you can do about this at the moment because he's going to stink. And you know what? Sometimes I wonder, do we do exactly the same when it comes to God? We sing songs like Indescribable, that we sung at the beginning, don't we, where we talk about the greatness and the majesty of God and how wonderful it is and how he, he, he sends lightning bolts places and brings snow and all of this sort of thing. And we say that nothing is impossible with God. We say that we believe that God can do anything. And yet when it comes to it, when God asks us to step up or step out, we say, God, are you really sure that's what you're calling us to do? That sounds a little bit risky. Listen, God, I know that you're all powerful, but that sounds a stretch even for you. You know, I believe, church, that as a church collectively, God is calling us out of our comfort zone to a place where we can fully rely on him for everything. What do I mean by that? Well, let's define what a comfort zone actually is. Wikipedia says this about a comfort zone. It says, the comfort zone is a psychological state in which a person feels familiar, at ease, in control, and experiences low anxiety and stress. In the zone, a steady level of performance is possible. It goes on to say that where our uncertainty, our scarcity, our vulnerability are minimized, where we'll believe that we have access to enough love, food, talent, time, admiration, where we feel that we have some control. Do you see that? The comfort zone is in direct opposition to God's will and his plans for our life. The comfort zone is the place where we say, do you know what, I've got everything that I need, everything is okay, I don't need to worry because everything is fine because I've sorted my life out. Whereas Jesus says these words in Matthew 8, 25 to 27. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds in the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than that? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to his life? Jesus is saying, don't worry, not because you're in a comfort zone and you have enough of everything, but don't worry because the God of heaven is on your side. And when things begin to look and feel uncomfortable from an earthly perspective, when the money appears to be drying up in your bank account, when people ridicule you for your beliefs, when you don't appear to have enough resources, don't worry because the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills is on your side and has your best interests at heart. The comfort zone says a steady level of performance is possible. I don't recall Jesus ever saying, I've come to give you life and a steady level of performance. Jesus said, I've come to give you life and life in all its fullness. Jesus has more for you and more for us to experience than we could ever possibly imagine. I don't want a steady level of performance. I'm not content with the size of church that we are. I want to see this city completely change because of the gospel that we believe has the power to do so. And my hope and my prayer is that is your heart too. But like the disciples, we need to look and see Jesus for who he really is. And be ready to move into the middle of the rink when he calls us to do that. Like Martha, 
We need to move past the theoretical concepts of God that he can do everything to a place where we totally and utterly rely on him individually and as a church. You know, here on Thursday, we had our latest partners meeting. And you know, it was an exciting partners meeting to be at. Yes, it is possible, church, to have an exciting partners meeting. On that partners meeting, we began to discuss together where God might be calling us to go over the next five years. At that partners meeting, we affirmed and we called Zoe to be the second minister here when she finishes training in 2024. God is on the move here. At times, that will feel a little bit scary, but I truly believe that God is calling us to embrace what he is calling us to embrace in this new season, that we might see him move powerfully in our midst. Not just by saying yes with our lips, but by saying yes with our lives. As we walk this journey with Jesus together, the final thing that I want us to see today is what happens when Lazarus is resurrected. Because Jesus goes to the tomb. The stone is rolled away. Jesus, with a word, calls Lazarus come forth. And out of that tomb, this man who had been dead and stinking for four days is raised to life. But what's amazing about this story for me is that when Lazarus comes out of the tomb, he comes out caked in grave clothes, probably about eight stones worth of grave clothes around his body. You would think, wouldn't you, that if Jesus has the power to raise a dead man from the tomb, he could have brought him out without all of this grave clothes caked around his body. But that's not what happens. Jesus, uh, Lazarus comes out of the tomb and his movement is incredibly restricted. He comes out like something from a horror movie, like a mummy from a horror movie. He cannot move. And what happens? Jesus turns to the crowds and he says to them, who removed his grave clothes? You see, what's happened in the life of Lazarus at this point is that internally, recomposition has happened. He is brought back to life. But what's happened on the outside is he's still carrying all this baggage that had been there from the start. And Jesus turns to the people and he says, you remove the grave clothes. It teaches us something about the nature of salvation. There is a nature to our salvation which is communal. It's communal in the fact that when we come to Christ, like Lazarus, recomposition happens in our lives and in our hearts. We're made anew. We're brought to life. But often we're still carrying around with us the grave clothes and the baggage from our old life. The past sins, the past hurts, the past regrets. And it still weighs us down. And you know, there's a nature to salvation which is communal because we are called to help one another work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We're called to walk this journey together and help one another remove the grave clothes. The journey of salvation cannot be a journey which is walked in isolation. We need one another as the people of God. That's why you cannot Say, I love Jesus, but I don't like his church. Because here's the thing. Jesus loves his church. He died for his church, and he's coming back for his church. And he uses his church to help us to draw closer to Jesus and to fully embrace Christ. We need one another. If we're going to be people who see Jesus for who he truly is, and we're going to walk out of that comfort zone that we're called to stay away from, we need one another to help us truly repent and leave behind our old ways, and to follow him. So church, the call this morning individually and collectively is simple. Let us look to Jesus today, and see him for who he truly is.
And whether, wherever you are at on your journey of faith today, let's take a step. Don't allow your faith to stagnate. Don't allow your faith to be a merely theoretical Don't allow your belief in Jesus to simply stop in your head. But today allow it to penetrate your heart. And then be moved to action. And once again, let's commit to walking this journey together. Knowing that true freedom in Christ is found when we do this with with one another. Helping each other to remove the grave clothes. I wonder this morning what step God might be calling you to take. I wonder where God might be calling you personally to trust today. I want to finish with a refrain of a song which was shared by a partner at our partners meeting on Thursday. Which says, Spirit, leave me where my trust is without borders. Let me walk upon the water wherever you may call me. Take me deeper than my feet could ever wander, that my faith might be made stronger in the presence of my Savior. Why don't we stand together this morning?